prayer. We're going to hear a little bit tonight about Jesus being uh, predicting some downcasted times for him. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Uh, if you open your Bibles, this is the passage John's preaching on, so you might want to have it open in front of you so you can follow along. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first amongst you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for Mary, many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Well, good evening, friends. It is good to see, and there are quite a few new faces this evening, so I'd love to see you personally afterwards. Uh, we're, we're continuing our series in Matthew. Today we're up to the second part of Matthew 20. It's an interesting one because it's helping us to reflect not just on what Christ did, but on ourselves as well. So let's pray once again. I think we need God's prayer for this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us see our own hearts and where we stand and how we live and how much our heart reflects the heart of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'll make that clear to us, and we pray, Lord, that tonight you might help us, that our hearts might align with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it always amazes me to come to church like tonight and to be amongst the family of God, just like you, just like tonight, and to see the wonderful diversity that there is here every week. Wonderful diversity. Let me share with you what I mean. Diversity here, some of you can dance, right? Some of you can't as hard as you try. Some of you can dance really well. 
uh, our senior minister, Chris, sometimes, even while he's preaching, he'll crack a move. And it's very, he can move. He's got rhythm. Some of us, like me, have no rhythm in any cell of my body. Cannot dance. Uh, last night, in fact, I was at a, a wedding ceremony. And uh, towards the end of the night, everyone's on the dance floor dancing. In fact, only those who could dance were dancing or should be dancing. I was there just eating my cake with Yvonne and the bride of, no, the mother of the bride. She's an old lady, very nice and cute lady. She grabbed me out, grabbed Yvonne onto the dance floor. What do you do when you can't dance? Well, she dragged us. We couldn't stop her. She was strong. And we were taught how to dance. Oh, I was taught. Yvonne, can't, she, she's got a little bit of rhythm. I've got nothing. And so there were these young girls on the dance floor. They knew what to do. They were telling me, this is how you do it. You step side to side, in beat, not out of beat, and then you clap. And sometimes you clap a few times depending on the song. And, and try to do that. Oh, it was hideous. And, and, and then one of the girls said to me, you need to bounce as well. That's how you make it look good. <laughs> but anyway, it was a hideous sight. So some can dance here, some can't. You see the diversity. Some of you can sing. Some of you can't sing. Some of you shouldn't sing. No, you should always <laughs> sing when we sing together. Some of you like eating green stuff like salad and cucumber and stuff like that. But some of us, men, we like things that were hunted and killed and still bleeding. Uh, there are differences in interests here, differences in hobbies, differences in culture, in language. There are lots of diver this diversity here and it's wonderful to see each week. But my question tonight for us is this. How many types of Christians are there? Are there the Christians who can? And then are there the Christians who can't? Are there the Christians who will? And the Christians who won't? Are there the Christians who are great? And the Christians who are not? How many types of Christians are there? Now this past week I was doing my work and I, I read a, a short news item from the BBC and watched some documentaries about a missionary, Jim Elliot. Many of you may have heard of him. Jim Elliot was an evangelical missionary to Ecuador. He was a part of an American team, a team of five missionaries. They wanted to bring the gospel to an unreached people group in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador. It's very fascinating, his life story and what they did. In fact, if you watch the documentaries and even a movie made about it, it's in fact very moving. They wanted to reach this people group known as the Waidani people. Now, what we know from anthropologists is that this was a very violent people group. They're, they're tribal and they would kill each other. That's just what they did. In fact, 60% of those who died did not die of old age, but 60% died from murder, inter-clan killing. And so they almost wiped themselves out just from killing each other. Revenge here, revenge there. And so pretty much every Wildani person had someone in their family who was killed. A brother, a father, an uncle. They all experienced death. This was this tribe. And this group of Christians wanted to reach this unreached group. Jim Elliot, he was 28 years old. This was the team, five of them. They wanted to bring the gospel to them. They sought to establish a relationship with this unreached group. They flew past over their plane, over their villages, villages for several months, in fact. 
They sent down gifts to the people down there, and sometimes they even received gifts back up. And so they did this for several months. Very fascinating. And after seeing the friendliness of these Wadani people, they decided finally that it was time to meet them on land, on the ground. And so on the 3rd of January, 1956, the team landed on a sandy beach close to their village to set up a camp. So that's the 3rd of January. They befriended a few of these people who came out to meet them. But one of these person, one of these villagers, afraid what the people back at the village might say of him, being spending time with these foreigners, he actually went back and he lied. He said these foreigners were dangerous and these foreigners attacked them. And so what happened on the 8th of January, 1956, a group of Wadani warriors came to their camp and speared these five men to death. Very sad story as they, they how they discovered the body in the river. And all that. It's very sad. But my question is, why would those five missionaries put themselves in such danger? I mean, they all had their own families to care for. Jim Elliot, he had his own daughter, not even one years old. Why would anyone do such a thing? And so my question for tonight to, to, to us is, are those Christians then a different type of Christian to us here tonight? Are they different? What was it about their faith that would get them to do such a thing? And what is it about our faith that would stop us from doing such a thing? And so my question is, are there different types of Christians? Well, what was it that was at the heart of these men? Christian men like that who would go out in that way. But the heart of these men, Christians like Jim Elliot, is really the Lord Jesus. At the very center of their existence is the Lord Jesus. And that should be the same for us. If we are Christians, if we are disciples of Jesus, that at our very heart, the very center of our existence must be the Lord Jesus. But what was at the heart of Jesus himself? What was it that Jesus set his mind on? What was it that Jesus set his focus on? What was it that Jesus set his eyes upon? Well, that's what we see here in this passage. What we see here is that it was the cross, not the crown. It was the cross, not the crown. See, Jesus has been healing for several years, feeding, teaching, raising the dead even. But now it comes to this point. This is why he came. So have a look with me. Verse 18. He says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Now we read those words, but those words are far more shocking than it sounds. I mean, if I were to say to my children, my kids, I will be betrayed. The people you know the people who you respect, they'll want me dead. I mean, of course, that's not true. But if I were to say that for them to hear that, it will be shocking. It will be really shocking. But what Jesus was saying here is far more shocking than that because it was true. But what makes it worse? He was the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? Jesus likes to call himself the Son of Man. Now, when we hear that, we might think, oh, Jesus just meant that he was a son of a human being. And so it's talking about his humanity. 
But, but no, that's not what son of man means. In the Old Testament, the son of man was a divine figure, a divine ruler in Daniel's vision. The one who will be given power and authority and glory over the whole world. He was a divine figure. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man, not, not as I'm a human, but I am that divine ruler. The divine ruler of the universe and I'll be betrayed and I'll be condemned to death. And if that was not shocking enough, listen to what Jesus says. The divine ruler will be handed over to Gentiles. Verse 19, they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, for a Jewish person, one of their greatest fears was to be handed over to a foreign power, to be killed by your enemies, amounted to experiencing the judgment and wrath of God. So if your enemy defeated you, that was the judgment of God, and that was what they feared most. And so even King David, the greatest king, when he sinned towards the end of his life, and that sin was not the Bathsheba sin, it was another sin, when he sinned by taking a census that showed his trust in his army rather than his trust in God, he was bound to be punished for that. And he had to pick what punishment he wanted from God. And what did he pick? Well, he'd rather have 70,000 of his men die from a plague sent by God than to flee from their enemies for three months. He'd rather die at the hand of God than at the hand of the enemies, than at the hand of the Gentiles. But here you see, Jesus, the divine ruler, the son of man, he will die at the hands of Gentiles, the worst curse for any Jewish man. But in the end, of course, we see he will be vindicated, raised back to life again. But we see here, what was at the heart of Jesus? It was not the crown. It was the cross. That was the heart that shaped Christians like Jim Elliot. But what was it, or what was it that was at the heart of his disciples then? What did the 12 put their focus on? What was at the center of their being? Why, they, they wanted the crown, not the cross. They wanted status, not service. And that's what we see now. It's a strange thing that happens in this story. The, the mother of James and John, the two disciples, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, talk about a tiger mum who only wants the best for her children. She was like the tiger mum. Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling asked a favour of him. What is it you want, he asked. Verse 21, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In their heart was the crown, not the cross. In their heart was status, not service. But at this point, you must admire the patience of Jesus. I mean, he's just told them, I am about to be killed. And all that you're concerned about is what you will get out of me. It's a bit like two sons splitting the inheritance before the father's dead. But what did Jesus say here? Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, now what's this cup? What did Jesus mean about, uh, from this? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup of God 
is the punishment and the wrath of God. So to drink of the cup of God means to suffer and to die. And so in Psalm 75, we read this. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And so Jesus is saying to James and John, are you sure you're able to drink this? Will your focus be on the cross instead of the crown? Will your focus be on service instead of status? Will you be willing to suffer for my name? Now, what did these disciples say? Well, they probably spoke better than they knew because they said straight away, we can, we can. But will they? Will they bear the cross for Jesus? Will they suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, look at verse 23 now. Jesus says, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. See, Jesus just predicted his own death. Now he's predicting what will come of them, his disciples. And eventually, it happened. These two did suffer for the sake of Christ. James the Apostle, he was put to the sword by Herod only about 11 years later. He was the first apostle to be martyred. John the Apostle, while well, he was banished by the Roman Emperor to the island of Patmos, left there to die in his old age. These two eventually did drink the cup. And countless Christians after that have also drank the cup, have suffered for the sake of Christ. The Apostle Paul, he says, My life is poured out like a drink offering in sacrifice and service of Christ. Jim Elliot, he wrote this in his journal. He didn't know that he was going to die yet. But he said, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. That was granted. 28 years, that was a full life, and that was enough for him. So why did the disciples get it so wrong at this point? You see, it wasn't just James and John who got it wrong. In fact, it was all of them who got it wrong. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, to be indignant means they were angry. But they were not angry, thinking, How dare you, James and John? How insensitive of you to ask that of our Lord and, and as soon as he predicted his death. No, no, their, their anger was out of jealousy. It was, man, we should have got in there first. They got in before us. That was out of jealousy. And so why did the disciples get it so wrong? Why were they thinking crown and not cross, status and not service? It's because they just like us, think that greatness means power, means authority, means prestige, means status. Greatness means having people under you to tell what to do. But you see, Jesus turns this upside down, turns their thinking upside down, turns our thinking upside down. You know, we've been reading the last few weeks, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so he tells them now, Greatness lies not in power and authority and status, but greatness lies in service. Have a look at verse 25. You know the, that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Their world was turned upside down. Our world should be turned upside down. If you want to go higher, the higher up you go, the greater, the greater you are. That's a, that's a deceptive distortion. It's the lower you go, the greater you are. The more people you love and serve, the greater you are. It's in fact why our political leaders in our land are called ministers. It actually comes from a Christian heritage. They're not lords or earls or whatever else they're called. They're called ministers. Why? It's because ministers are there to serve their people, to serve their people in parliament, to care for their people, not to lord it over them. And so the prime minister, he's meant to be the first of the servants, not lord it over them. To go up is to go down. That is what Jesus is saying. And it's also why church ministers are called ministers. We're meant to be servants, to serve and not rule. Now, the other week when Chris was on leave, a lady in the morning service, jokingly and you know, cheerfully, said to me, so, so you're the boss this week, Chris was away. And, and I said, well, that, that sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like greatness and status. I said, no, Jesus is the boss. Just remember that. Jesus is the boss. Yesterday at the wedding, so you're, 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 you're the boss. This is your church. No, Jesus is the boss. It is his church. You see, greatness is about service, not status. You see, Christians get this wrong all the time. Even in the Christian world, people just love their titles. The reverent, the very reverent, the most reverent, the right reverent. I'm not making these up. These are real titles. I mean, how much can you revere a person? Sometimes I even call pastor, Pastor John. It happened again yesterday. I said, no, John is enough. Don't tease me that way. You see, greatness is about service, not status. Jim Elliot, he knew this. Look at what he said. He said, Lord, make my way prosperous. Not prosperous in the way we think. Make my way prosperous that I achieve a high station. That I not, sorry, Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve a high station, but that my life be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. See, he understood that. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. But now, what's the point of all this? Jesus predicted his death. Why focus on the cross when it means death? Why focus on service and being a slave when it means self-denial? Why did Jesus set his heart upon that? Well, here now, in this verse we come to the heart of the gospel, the heart of what Christianity is about, the heart of Jesus. Have a look, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who is greatest of all, he is great, he deserves to be great, made himself the lowest of all. That is the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of Jesus. It was to give his life as a ransom, to experience the betrayal of friends, to experience the unjust condemnation of his own people, to experience the agony of the crucifixion, to be hoisted up 
on that rude cross. At the cross, Jesus drank the bitter cup to its very dregs. His life was wasted away as a ransom for many. As a ransom for who? As a ransom for us. No amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of status, no amount of greatness can ransom any one of us from the grave. But the life and death of Jesus can. And so the heart of Jesus was the cross. Because at the heart of Jesus is people like you and me. And so we see in this passage, we see it later on. We see his compassion. While everyone wanted those two blind men to be silent, to not bother this important Lord, what did Jesus do? Jesus compassionately served them. Jesus lovingly healed them. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. And so if that is what Jesus is like, if that is what his heart is like, what do you think it should mean for us who follow him? Well, let me ask it in another way. How many different types of Christians are there? Those who will and those who won't? Well, you see, there should only be one. There must only be one type of Christian. And that is the serving type. That is the sacrificial type. That is the Jim Elliot type. The faith that drove him to do what he did is the same faith that drives us. The heart that motivated him to do what he did is the same heart that should motivate us. The gospel that compelled him and his friends is the same gospel that compels us. And so how many types of Christians are there? There is only one. The serving type. The sacrificial type. And so if we understand this, how can any one of us today, as disciples and, and followers of Jesus, how can any one of us still think that we can pursue a life longing for greatness in status, in power, in comfort, in success, in prosperity, in wealth? How can we? Jesus speaks exactly against that directly against that that would be to be like james and john to be at the right and left hand of jesus and i said this in the past we christianize our idolatry of it we call it well give me this lord that but it's for your glory let me be at your left and right give it to me but it's, it's for your glory we try to christianize it place us in a place of honor for, for your glory of course but we christianize our idolatry you see, it's so easy to be sucked into this way of greatness, isn't it? Don't you think so? It's a deceptive root that is so difficult to weed out because it's so ingrained in the way our society functions, in the way we've been raised, in the things we strive for. And it even, it even affects those in full-time gospel ministry. Hard to believe. It even affects ministers of the gospel hard to believe but you see it's very easy for us to measure greatness the greatness of our church in terms of numbers in terms of finances in terms of the power of the preacher you know have one church compared to another church greatness in status rather than greatness in service we fall into that trap too 
and it's a temptation, especially for those who are up front a lot, like myself, seeking the praise of men, as opposed to seeking to serve humbly the church of Christ. Now, I've been a minister here for five years, but I've actually been preaching for about 16 years. Since I was 21, I wrote my first sermon and, and spoke uh, at an a, a NTE mission, a CE mission, 16 years ago. Since I've started preaching, very easy, very easy to seek the crown and not the cross. Very easy to seek the status and not to serve. And so a few years ago, I learned a, a prayer from a, another minister. A prayer I pray each time I preach, before each time I preach. It's a short prayer. It's like this. You, not me. Short prayer. You, not me. That is you, God, not me. Your greatness, not mine. Your glory, not mine. Your honor, not mine. You, not me. Very simple prayer. And that's what we're learning in this passage, isn't it? Cross, not crown service not status you not me the mark of true greatness is in service and so now let's think a bit about our church and let's think a bit about you in a church family this size perhaps tonight there are about about a hundred of us here out of the hundred here how many servants should we have well if the hundred of you are Christians, then we should have 100 servants. You see, there's only one type of Christian. But why is it that according to statistics, many, many churches, it's only 10% of the people who do 90% of the serving? Shouldn't it be 100% doing 100% of the serving? Statistically, in many, many churches, it's 10% of the people who give 90% of the offering. Shouldn't it be 100% giving 100%? And so this is something for you to ask yourself. Are you among the 90% who come to be served and not serve? Or are you among the 10% who come not to be served but to serve? I want you to think about that. But I do want to say that thanks be to God, I don't think... That's only 10% who are serving the 90. I think there's a lot more than 10% here, and praise God for that. More than 10% who serve weekly, humbly, faithfully each week. But do you think it's 100% of us? Are there still different types of Christian? The serving type, the not-so-serving type, those who will and those who won't. Because there's only meant to be the one type of Christian, right? The other week I was encouraged by by one of our fellows here, approached Yvonne said, I've been coming to this church a while, what can I do? I need to be involved in service. And Yvonne said, ESL. And he was there. Wonderful. That's the attitude. And so now let me put this challenge to you. How serving are you? Or how great are you? Just consider what Christians do and why. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone see mess and rubbish on the floor as they leave the church and voluntarily pick it up if it's not for cross, for service, for you? I noticed this. One of our elders, one of our elders, you know, you usually leave those stuff the cleaners come Monday anyway. 
but he's a faithful godly man and i thought what greatness what service what about this why would anyone why would anyone do this why would anyone come to church early when you're not even on duty if it's not for a cross for service for you i mean that's such an easy way to serve the people of god but if i can't even be responsible for such a simple task how can i be responsible for more what about this why would anyone at the expense of their own study time help a friend in their studies get involved in evangelism on campus teach children in our sunday school care for babies in creche get involved in teaching our youth get involved in discipling someone meeting up even at the expense of their own grades if it's not for cross for service and for you why would anyone choose instead of hang out with friends all the time choose to consciously after church there's someone who's come there's someone who's new i want to befriend that person even if it means it's hard it's so uncomfortable it's not easy it's difficult if it's not for cross for service and for you why would anyone open up their home to strangers to show hospitality to let people stay over a few nights to share your meal with them and your family life with them even at the expense of losing time alone even at the expense of having to stay up later to clean up if it's not for cross for service and for you or, or why would anyone choose to commit meeting weekly not just on sunday but during the week at our growth groups even it's it's a tiring day it's just so tiring I, I can't be bothered going I just don't feel right why would they go anyway if it's not for cross for service and for you or why would anyone why would anyone do this leave their full-time job and undertake a ministry apprenticeship to be better equipped to serve the cause of the gospel why would anyone in their right mind do such a thing even if it means losing out financially even if it means losing status and honor in this world if it's not for cross for service and for you why would anyone in their right mind steadily each year as their income increases increase in their gospel giving even if it means less for their family if it's not for cross for service for you why would anyone leave their career opportunities leave it completely and undertake theological training like some of our student ministers invest four years at bible college why would anyone be crazy enough to marry such a person even if it means no income for four years an uncertain future and a relentless ministry life ahead if it's not for cross for service for you why would anyone leave country leave a country of great comfort to become a missionary in the dangerous rainforest of the amazon to reach an unreached people group that they may hear of christ even if it means being inconvenienced in a serious way and risking their lives why if it's not for cross for service and for you see why would anyone do any of these things from the little things to the big things 
It's because there's only one type of Christian. The serving type. The sacrificial type. The one who has the heart of Christ. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. You, not me. And for some, following that path of service and sacrifice, for some, it might even mean giving their life. You see, those five men who went to the Amazon, when the warriors came out to confront them with their spears, these men, in fact, had their guns. They had their guns. They could have shot back. But they were resolved as missionaries earlier on that they will never kill the wild Dani people, even if they were attacked. And why? They make this statement. They are not ready for heaven, and we are. Our lives are expendable. We're going to go heaven anyway. Them, not yet. And so, just like what Christ did as a ransom for many, coming to serve us and to die for us, none of their service goes to waste. None of any service goes to waste. The little ones, the big ones. You see, what, what came of Jim Elliott and his team from, from their service? I mean, they died. They left their families without a husband, without a father. Didn't seem like they achieved very much at all. They were killed on, on first contact. Seems like such a waste of life. But two of their wives, they continued their work. More missionaries became involved in that work. And Christianity eventually came to the wild Dani people. If Christianity did not come to them, they probably would have killed each other off. The missionaries eventually also made contact with those killers. Four out of six became Christians. And when a church was established there, those four became the elders. Just imagine what God can do with your service. The little ones, the big ones. Your service might be small, but God could use it, just like what he used Jesus to do, to save lives. But I do want to end with this. For you to reflect in your heart of hearts, what type of Christian are you? You see, there's only one type. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. You, not me. Let's pray. Heavenly